A warm welcome to First Move. I'm Julia Chatterley. Great to have you with us and plenty coming up in the show this hour, including a growing backlash against President Putin's mobilization order. Many fighting age men in Russia desperately attempting to leave the country and avoid that military draft. Plus, a major storm heading into the Gulf of Mexico. Hurricane Ian made landfall in Cuba a few hours ago. Its next target, Florida. We've got all the latest on that. And speaking of hurricanes, of course, the British pound in the eye of the storm stabilizing, as you can see there today. Let's call it that after falling to a record low versus the US dollar on Monday. This as the UK plans to implement its biggest tax cuts in 50 years while borrowing tens of billions of pounds or dollars equivalent. Watch much. What does it mean, though, for the industry? We'll speak to the head of the British Beer and Pub Association to discuss their battle for survival, too, amid all the challenges for the UK economy. Meanwhile, take a look at this on Wall Street. US futures are tilting to the top side. This after five straight days of losses, the Dow entering bear market territory on Monday. So that means losses of 20% or more from its January high. The S&P 500 hit a fresh low for the year in Monday's session too. But as you can see, it was looking to bounce back a bit. Goldman Sachs and BlackRock warning that the US stock market still hasn't priced in the risk of a recession. And we'll discuss that too. And coming up later this hour, we speak to billionaire investor and author David Rubinstein. He's a co-founder of the private equity giant Carlyle Group. In his latest book, he's talking to some of the world's most successful investors and getting crucial advice on how to build and maintain wealth. I think we could all use some of that at this moment. But for now, let's get right to our top story. And Rahel Solomon joins us now. Rahel, great to have you with us. Um, rate expectations have increased fairly significantly in the United States. I think we've got another three quarters of a percentage point hike priced in for November. And there's also a lot of bad news in the stock markets. I think the big question for investors here is where's that equilibrium point? And uh, Goldman Sachs, BlackRock, not so sure it's here. Well, it's a great question, Julia. Good to be with you. And I think the answer is no one really knows, including the Fed, right, in terms of how high they'll have to raise interest rates to really start to bring inflation down uh, convincingly to its 2% target. In fact, Nomura, Julia, putting out a note yesterday saying that it was raising its terminal rate forecast to get this five and a quarter to five and a half percent by March of 2023. So that would imply and assume uh, many more aggressive rate hikes are coming on the way to get to that point, Julia. But this, of course, comes as inflation, not just here in the U.S., but around the world, remains at near 40-year highs. I want to show you very quickly sort of what the Dow and the S&P have been doing just to give you a sense of just how volatile this year has been. But, of course, inflation still hovering at 40-year highs. Uh, The latest reading here in the U.S., putting it at 8.3%. Again, the Fed's target is closer to 2%. And in terms of how we get out of this, you know, Julia, up until this point, there had been a feeling, certainly a hope among those uh, more optimistic in the community, that maybe we could reach that Goldilocks soft landing, right? That maybe the Fed could raise rates enough to curb inflation, but not so much that it would crush demand and really bring about a recession. But it looks like uh, those optimistic folks are becoming more few and far between. BlackRock, for example, saying we don't see a soft landing adding. That means more volatility and pressure on risk assets. But at a time, Julia, when all of the major averages, the Dow, the S&P and the Nasdaq are all off at least 20 percent, the Nasdaq about 30 percent this year. That's really hard to wrap your head around if BlackRock is warning that uh, we may see more volatility, we may see more pressure on equities. And yet here we are. 
Some very great points raised there, and we will continue to um, ask all of these questions. Rahel Solomon, thank you so much for that. Okay, let's move on now in parts of Ukraine. Separatists are wrapping up what are widely considered sham referenda votes to join Russia. Ukraine and Western countries like the United States have condemned the Russian-backed referendums, saying they won't recognize the results. And at home, Russia is facing growing opposition over its chaotic troop mobilization. Neighboring Georgia says the number of Russians arriving there has nearly doubled since President Putin announced the plan. Ben Wiedemann joins us now. Ben, we can talk about both of these things. I think the most important part is that the secession referendums that are taking place, sham referendums, are expected to, to end today. That the fear, I think, is Russia could move to annex these regions even within days. I don't think it's a fear. It's an inevitability that that, that is going to happen. In fact, we heard uh, the head of the so-called Donetsk People's Republic uh, saying that he expects Russia to be, he rather expects Donetsk to be united with Russia very soon. Now, the result that today is the last day of voting and it's in-person voting uh, at uh, voting stations. And tomorrow the final results will be announced. Now, tonight I don't expect, I don't recommend any of our viewers to stay up and wait for the results because the results are obvious. Uh, clearly, this is a sham referendum and the result is a foregone uh, conclusion. Now, as this referendum wise, winds down, uh, what we're seeing certainly in this part of the country, in Kharkiv and also parts of Luhansk and Donetsk, uh, Ukrainian forces continue to gain ground in this massive counteroffensive. Yesterday, we were in one town that was taken just Saturday afternoon, and uh, what we saw, there were still dead Russian soldiers uh, in the streets. We counted 22, and we went through only a small uh, part of that town. We saw a lot of destroyed uh, Russian military hardware, and we saw many tanks that the Russians abandoned and are essentially ready to be used by the Ukrainians against the Russians. Uh, we spoke to one commander who was telling us that the Russian prisoners that they've taken are extremely demoralized. They complain about poor food, poor equipment, poor leadership, lack of logistics. So this referendum is really a race against time for the Russians to make sure that they create basically a, a reality, facts on the ground, so to speak, uh, because the Ukrainians, as I said, are gaining ground steadily in many of the areas that the Russians would like to make part of the so-called motherland. Julia? Ben, there's other races against time, it seems, going on as well, and that's Russians heading to the border because they're fearful of being called up for military service. There have been some wild numbers uh, reported of people trying to cross the border into Georgia. The Georgian authorities have pushed back and said, look, some of these numbers that are being speculated about are nowhere near the, the scale that they're seeing. What do we know? Well, we know that thousands of people, mostly men, have been trying to cross from Russia into Georgia. And we've just gotten information that the Russians are setting up basically recruitment teams on the Georgian border to essentially stop young Russian men, or just not even young men, middle-aged men, some, in some cases older men, from, from crossing into Georgia. In fact, they're being yanked into 
uh, military service. And as far as that military service is concerned, it sounds like they're basically being given uniforms in most cases. And the plan is to send them to the front. Now, yesterday, one Russian newspaper uh, was quoting sources from the Russian intelligence that more than 250,000 Russian men have left the country since Vladimir Putin announced this so-called partial mobilization. Julia? Great to have you with us and thank you for that update. Okay, let's move on. Nord Stream, which is the operator of the Nord Stream 1 platform, says there's been unprecedented damage, quote, to its pipelines under the Baltic Sea. That, according to Reuters, Russia says it's extremely concerned and that nothing can be ruled out as to the cause. Denmark is sending two ships to the area to make sure no one enters the maritime zone. Claire Sebastian is on the story for us. An unprecedented level of damage, Claire, in just one day. I think I can imagine what our viewers are thinking might be the cause here. But what are the facts as we know them so far? Yeah, Julia, what we know is that this happened, I think I can pull up a map to show you exactly where, around the Danish island of Bornholm in the Baltic Sea, two leaks to the Nord Stream 1 and two, and one leak to the Nord Stream 2. The, the Nord Stream 1 leaks were northeast of the island, the Nord Stream 2 uh, south of the island. So this is three leaks to two different pipelines uh, happening, according to the operator, simultaneously. That is what uh, they are calling unprecedented. We know uh, that the Danish armed forces have established a prohibition zone uh, around the areas of the leaks. The Swedish Maritime Authority uh, is also telling ships to stay uh, five miles away. The Danish armed forces have put out some video of those leaks. They say that the largest where you can actually see, it looks a bit like a geezer, uh, the sort of gas spurting up onto the surface of the sea. The largest, they say, is around a thousand kilometer diameter, the smallest uh, around 200 meters. So this very mysterious. We don't know the cause as of yet. The Danish prime minister said she is very concerned. And that was a sentiment echoed by the Kremlin spokesman, Dmitry Peskov, who said they also find this extremely concerning. He was asked about whether uh, it could be sabotage, and he said that no possibility could be ruled out. As you know, the fate of these two pipelines, neither of them currently operational, by the way, the Nord Stream 1 uh, stopped sending gas to Europe at the beginning of this month. The Nord Stream 2 never got off the ground uh, because of the war, but there is still, uh, we believe, gas in those pipelines, which is why these leaks are concerning. And European gas prices, Julia, up about 9% as of now. One analyst telling me that a war risk premium is back in those prices. Yes, despite efforts to bring those prices down. And I think uh, the potent point in that was that uh, the Kremlin spokesperson was asked if it was sabotage. And he said at the moment, no possibility can be ruled out, to your yeah. point. Mm. Claire Sebastian, thank you so much for that. OK, let's move to Cuba now, where Hurricane Ian made landfall as a Category 3 storm in the early hours Tuesday morning. Residents are dealing with powerful winds and the threat of rising water levels. Patrick Ottman joins us now from Havana. Patrick, just give us a sense of what you've seen. It's not just about the strong winds. It is also the risk of storm surge, too. Uh, yes, and that's really the danger. We're waiting to see how that impacts Cuba. Uh, right now in Havana, the, the storm is hitting to the west of us, uh, the ro remote rural countryside of, of Cuba. And people there have had a, a harrowing night. Uh, some have lost roofs, some have had da damage to their farms, but no reports of any loss of life there. Nearly 40,000 people evacuated from that province ahead of the storm, according to the government. Uh, here in Havana, it's been the bands of wind and rain throughout the morning. That is 
supposed to pick up as the storm moves off Cuba into the Gulf of Mexico. And you could, as you mentioned, get that storm surge because we are on a coastal city. So that, that really is the danger here. And even though Havana is not going to get a direct hit, thankfully, thankfully from this storm, a, a lot of times uh, in the city, which has uh, such aging infrastructure, has, has old buildings that have not been maintained properly over the years. A lot of times when you just have a, a, a big rainstorm, you can have buildings collapse. You can have pieces of buildings fall. You can have heavy, heavy flooding. So that's what we're waiting to see here if that takes place. And even if uh, Havana missing the storm still gets uh, hit very hard uh, by uh, Ian as it passes uh, by the city and, and finally leaves Cuba at, heading towards the Gulf Coast of the, of the United States. Yeah, Patrick, stay safe and um, we continue to report in and check in with you throughout programming today. Patrick Otten there in Havana, so thank you. Okay, we're going to take a break here on First Move, but straight ahead, low spirits at the British pub. Many are warning they won't survive the winter as energy costs surge. We speak to the CEO of the British Beer and Pub Association and a crash course in saving humanity. NASA tackles all baby tangos with an asteroid seven million miles from Earth. These are stunning pictures and it's all coming up next. Welcome back to First Move. Some of the biggest names in finance are sharing their insights, stories of both success and at times failure, and advice on what it takes to make a great investor with our next guest in How to Invest, Masters on the Craft, historian, host and co-founder of the Carlyle Group, David Rubenstein, interviews fellow billionaires, including BlackRock CEO Larry Fink, Ray Dalio, Citadel's Ken Griffin and Barron Capital founder Ron Barron, among many others. Rubenstein, who's donated proceeds from the book to several children's hospitals, says he hopes the books inspire students who want to go into the world of investing. David Rubenstein joins us now. David, fantastic to have you on the show. It's sort of an ultimate guide to investing, actually, for me, because you're covering all bases. You're um, giving advice on how to pick others to manage your money, if you're trying to manage your money yourself, or if you're thinking about a career. And we'll dig into the details, but I think one of the key takeaways for me was um, spend as much time researching how to build and protect your wealth as you do to earn in the first place, which is key. That's true. I mean, a lot of people spend a lot of time making money and then they don't spend as much time figuring out how to invest it. And the advice for average people that's in the book is that get people who know what they're doing if you're going to have somebody managing your money for you. If you want to have a career in this area, well, work hard, learn, read a great deal and recognize you're not going to be Warren Buffett overnight. Yeah, I think one of the things that connects all these people is um, intellectual curiosity and a, and a desire for learning, whatever it is. But I think one of the other themes that I loved was just because you're a genius or really great at, at one thing or something doesn't necessarily going to mean that you're going to be great at, um, at managing money. And another thing that connects all these individuals amid their success is, is humility and I think failure at times and, and learning from that failure. Yes. Uh, all great investors have had m big mistakes in their career. They've lost money and they've learned a lot from that. And they get back up into the arena and work again and fight hard. But that produces humility. If you have a very arrogant money manager, I think in the end that person is probably going to make a big mistake and not recognize that he or she is making that mistake. Humility is a great virtue in investors as it is in human life. What about luck? 
and, and gut feeling. And when does um, what might be luck after years or even decades in certain cases become about more than luck? I mean, you're always funny when you write these things or when you talk, but you sort of list your good trades and your bad ones. And you say perhaps the, the best was the decision to, to launch Carlisle um, and, and the process that you went through over decades with that. But on the bad side, the decision to tell Jeff Bezos that he'd never beat Barnes and Noble selling books, because, of course, that's where he started and thinking right. that Facebook wouldn't leave a dorm room <laughs> or at least college. Um, well, there's good and bad in there. Luck is, <laughs> luck is something that you make uh, for yourself. I mean, it doesn't just happen out of the sky. You get luck by me- making contacts, by working hard, and eventually you'll, you'll, you'll get some luck. If you just sit there and hope that luck will come along and you do nothing to bring about something that comes along, you're not likely to be that lucky. But counting on the market to bail you out and be lucky in the market is a fool's errand. You really have to work at it. And that's what the great investors do. What else do they do? Because one of the other things I I found quite fascinating about this is most of them never intended to be an investor. I mean, Sam Zell was going to be a fireman. Uh, David Blood, a teacher or a forest ranger. Robin Barron was looking at patent. He was um, examining patents and wanted to become a doctor. What was, in your mind, from having these conversations, that real moment for them where they went, actually, you know what, this is what I'm going to do or or, this is what I'm good at and therefore we'll pursue this path? It's a rare great investor who says at the age of 10, I'm going to be an investor in my career. Uh, Warren Buffett (laughs) was always interested in business, but that was unusual. Most of these people started out trying to do something else. I started out, I'm not a great investor, but I'm in the investment world. And I I started out wanting to be a lawyer and get into government. Um, Many people start out in different careers and they wound up in investing. And what they all have in common is a pretty good uh, academic background, a pretty good feel for math and a really hard work quotient. And they also recognize that humility is an important virtue because they're going to make mistakes. But their their willingness to go against the grain is probably what unites them more than anything else. They're willing to defy conventional wisdom. If they went along with conventional wisdom, they wouldn't be great. What separates them is they're willing to say no when others are saying yes and vice versa. And that's what really makes a great investor, a willingness to take a chance when others say you shouldn't be doing so. So you just said you are not a great investor. What do you I'm not compared put- to these people? <laughs> okay, okay. It was a, it was a relative comment. I was just going to ask what you put Carlisle's success down to. Well, Carl- Carlisle's others. success is due to uh, many people, and we have many people who are great investors in the firm. As I say in the book, I'm not the investor who is the great one at Carlisle. There are many others. My role at Carlisle has been doing other things, but I happily participated in investment committees and I've been the beneficiary of the great investors we've had at Carlisle. And one woman in the book is from Carlisle, uh, Sandra Horbach, who is the most experienced bench buyout investor in the United States and done a spectacular job for Carlisle and her previous firm, Forceman Little. I thought she would be a lawyer. I looked at that one as well. I, um, <laughs> I like that conversation with her. Do you know what else I found quite fascinating is what else they do? whether it's philanthropy or who they are as people. And actually Ray Dalio and the importance of meditation, something that he saw the Beatles doing uh, many decades ago and how intrinsic that is to his life. How important are those kind of things, David? Because that caught my attention from Ray specifically. All the great great investors have some, let's say, uh, tricks or habits or eccentricities, you might say. Transcendental meditation is an important part of Ray Dalio's life. He does it every day, and he thinks that calming influence of transcendental med- meditation has made him a great investor. Uh, I'm not a transcendental meditation type, 
But, you know, maybe I should try it someday. If I could, you know, get the results that he did, maybe it'd be a good idea. <laughs> what surprised you most? Who surprised you most? Well, tra transcendental meditation is something that calms uh, Ray Dalio a great deal. And it has a, a soothing effect on his ability to think through where markets are going. Uh, I tend to be probably unable to be that calm as, uh, for as long a period as, as it required. But hope springs eternal. Maybe I should try it someday. <laughs> yeah, you talk about this in the book, this idea of you're trying to pick people to predict the future or at least see around corners, which I think is what's required today. Yes. Um, yeah, I, I think this is a crucial point. Um, and, and particularly given what we're seeing today, answer you're going to say well, something david yeah that's an important point um all of life is really about predicting the future should you marry this person should you go to this school and you can't assess with perfect numbers whether you made the right decision or not but you are guessing about the future in investing you're really guessing about the future where markets are going to be where this company is going to be and we have a perfect metric in the business world to measure your investment acumen and your investment ability to predict the future and it's really profit and loss and internal rates of return so if you think about it investing is really about life itself it's predicting the future but we have a better way of measuring uh, it in the investment world than we do in life generally <laughs> yeah it's a great point uh, if we look at what's happened in finance over the last, or the dramatic change that we've seen over the last three decades, you could then collapse that and say, actually, perhaps we've seen even more change in the past three years. And we've seen what we often talk about as the democratization of, of finance, particularly in the United States. And it sort of ties to one of the conversations that you had with, um, well, in the crypto space with Galaxy and, and Mike Novogratz, and this idea that, that there's been huge rewards, but also huge losses for some of these new players in the space, yes. in, in crypto, for example, but elsewhere too. Um, what's the advice for these people? Well, I tried to put in the book some of the latest investment categories like cryptocurrency or ESG or infrastructure, things that are relatively new in the investment world. Crypto has obviously got an enormous amount of attention and a lot of people have made a lot of money in that area. Some people have lost a lot of money in that area. And what I'm trying to say about this category is you really need to know what you're doing and just don't think you're going to invest in crypto and all of a sudden make a great fortune. And something like that, you probably have to be very careful and recognize you could lose all your money if you're not very careful. But I think what we learned about the investment world is it's always changing and there's always going to be something new and something new always attracts more and more people because people love something that's new. People don't like the old as much as they like the new. And crypto is something that's new and attracts young people particularly. So it's a case of um, buyer beware and probably full circle back to my first question, which was about doing the research, putting the time in and, and understanding what you're investing in. Yes, you really have to read about what you're doing. Mm. You can't just assume that you're going to be great at picking stocks or cryptocurrencies. Read about what you're doing. Talk to other people. But most people, for most people, uh, it's good to get good money managers who know what they are doing and give them good, good. Uh, give them your money and let them decide what to do with it. But I also think when you do that, you should make sure you know the fees and make sure you get the regular accounting and and make sure that you understand what these people are doing with your money. Hmm. Um, David, I want to pull it forward to today. And, and you and I had a conversation when uh, when we were in Davos in May. And of all the conversations I had there, you were by far the most optimistic when a lot of people were in the doldrums and talking about re recession risk. I just wondered where you are today, what your thinking is relative to, to then. 
Well, in the United States, uh, it's not clear if we will go into a recession. Uh, we obviously are not in one yet. And it's clear that uh, there's some, uh, I would say, nervous signals that we're getting from the Federal Reserve and others that the Fed is likely to increase interest rates again. It could tip us into a recession. It's not clear yet. But a point I would make, even if we go into recession, we have a recession every seven years or so on average United States. It's not the end of the earth. It's not a terrible situation from which we can't recover. It doesn't think like it doesn't seem like we'll have a great recession as we did in 07, 08. And remember, as an investor, the best time to invest is when markets are down. People make the common mistake of thinking markets are down. That's when I put my money under the mattress. The truth is the best time to invest historically is when markets are down, when you can get things at a cheaper prices. So as an investor, I'm not saying it's a very bad time right now. It might be a great time for it to be an investor right now. Yeah, it's a keep calm and carry on message, as always, which we like. Um, I just want to quickly get your comments um, Europe, obviously, in a, a, a very different situation, I think, given their reliance on, on Russian energy in particular. Um, but the UK has been, let's call it lively, over the past four days. As a, as a sort of big outside investor and as, a, I mean, as an observer as well, I think, of credibility of, of governments and central banks, what do you make of what we're seeing there? Well, what's happening in the UK is really the beginning of, uh, you know, a... a downward spiral in, in the value of the pound. And I think that Brexit has had an impact on it. The Ukraine wars had an impact on it. And Britain's position in the world has had an impact on it. Britain is not the, the economic powerhouse that it was 50 years ago. And as a result, you're seeing a gradual weakening of the pound, in part because the dollar is so strong. We're raising interest rates here, which tends to increase the value of the dollar. And the U.S. economy is pretty much in a, in a reasonable position compared to Europe. Europe is pretty much in a recession, and England is in a recession, as the Bank of England has already said. So I think the pound's weakening reflects the fact that uh, England has had some real challenges economically. And I do think that Brexit has been a bigger impact adversely on the British economy than, than maybe people would like to admit. Which sounds like you think there's more weakness to come. I think... Uh, we haven't seen the bottom yet of probably where we're going to go in the pound. But I do think that uh, in, in the end, uh, uh, Britain is a very strong economy. It's still one of the biggest economies in the world. It just has a hard time competing with all of the EU and the United States uh, for economic rivalry in the world. It's just not able to do that any longer. Yeah. In a battle of the uglies. Um... It's sort of uh, right down there with the ugliest. Um, OK, I want to wrap up the conversation and repeat that the book proceeds uh, go to three hospitals, I believe. And I also read in um, one of the interviews you gave, you said your ultimate ambition for this book is that your children read it. So I wanted to ask if, if your children have read this book and what they thought. Well, I've signed copies for it and sent it to them. But uh, whether they read it or not, I don't know. It's very rare that <laughs> children want to read their parents' books. So my children are all in the investment world. So maybe they will uh, read this book at some point. We'll see. Watch this space. Well, I read it and I really enjoyed it. So um, thank you. And thank you for your thank time. Thank you very today. much for your time. And thank you for having me. Always a pleasure, sir. Thank you. Co-founder and co-chairman of the Carlisle Group there, David Rubenstein. And his new book, How to Invest Masters on the Craft, is out now. There is the front cover. More First Move after this. Welcome back to First Move. And I was so excited uh, talking about investing with David Rubenstein there that we completely missed the opening bell. Oopsie, my fault. But there's stocks 
in the United States are now trading, as you can see, and we are higher, attempting to snap a five-day losing streak after a volatile session Monday pushed the Dow into bear market territory. As you can see, we are eight-tenths of a percent higher, but we have slipped and we are slipping there for the Dow relative to where we were looking a couple of hours ago. So we'll watch this space. In the meantime, shares of cruise lines cruising higher as Canada is set to lift all of its COVID restrictions for international travellers. And the tech giants also making gains as Treasury yields retreat from Monday's highs. There's the picture there. You can see Amazon and Apple both higher by almost 2%. Okay, elsewhere in the world, to Iran now. At least 41 people have died in protests over the suspicious death of a woman in the custody of the notorious morality police. That, according to Iranian state media, CNN cannot confirm that number. (laughs) 22-year-old Masa Amina's death has sparked protests in over 45 Iranian cities. In a show of unity, too, the Turkish singer Melek Mosso cut her hair during a concert in Istanbul. It's a symbol for the oppression women face on many of their personal freedoms in Iran. Germana Karadze is in Istanbul for us. Germana, much going on, and not only in Iran, but I do want to focus there. Do we have any sense of, of how many people have lost their lives, has been injured? We're still in this effective blackout over information, and we don't really have a sense of, of how much longer this will go on or what kind of crackdown we're seeing from the authorities. What can you tell us? And that internet blackout, Julia, is making it very difficult for us to try and get information out of the country, try and reach sources, uh, journalists on the ground. And it's also, you know, with the uh, with the government blocking social media platforms, it's also making it uh, near impossible for a lot of protesters, activists and journalists to upload images of what is going on, to tell the world what is happening. And we've seen a pattern over the past few days is these protests begin in the evening Um, and so late at night and possibly the next day we get this these delayed video and images that start coming out afterwards they trickle out of the country and so what we saw last night taking place in Iran is that these protests were still ongoing you're still seeing people defiant out on the streets of different cities including the capital Tehran where we're hearing from some eyewitnesses that some neighborhoods of Tehran that hadn't seen protests uh, so far. People were out on the streets there uh, last night. But again, it's so difficult to assess how widespread and how big these protests are. But it does appear that despite the government crackdown, people are still going out. And a reminder what that crackdown looks like. They are dragging people off the streets, out of their homes. According to the government's own figures, more than a thousand people have so far been detained. Uh, 20 journalists have been detained according to the Committee to Protect Journalists. And then the death toll. It is so difficult for us uh, to try and verify this independently and we have not been able to do so so far because of all these restrictions that are in place. But estimates are anywhere, Julia, between 40 to 80 people killed so far. And these are numbers coming from different organizations, including Amnesty International and state media, human rights groups, and uh, also opposition groups. And we heard Amnesty saying that what they have seen in recent days is the authorities there are opening fire, live rounds, deliberately and directly at protesters. So, I mean, the real fear right now, Julia, is we don't know how many people have really been killed. 
and that we've seen this all before. If you look back at 2019 and what happened then, yes, these protests are different. Everybody would tell you the scale, the scope, the fact that women are leading a lot of these protests. It is different, but there is a government playbook and we are watching this play out in front of us right now with internet being blocked, the use of force, a lot of concern about what we are going to find out and what is going to happen, and especially the bolder these protesters are the more persistent these protests are, there's a lot of concern that the government is really going to unleash brutal force to try and crush this yet again. Yes, the uprising feels different, but to your point, the uh, potential crackdown could rise to it too. Germana Karachi, thank you so much for that report there. We'll continue to watch and report. Okay, up next, Britain's pandemic-hit pubs now warn of an even greater existential threat. We speak to the CEO of the British Beer and Pub Association. That's next. Welcome back to First Move. The iconic British pub is in crisis. The pandemic-scarred industry warned surging energy costs means many won't make it through the winter. The government has unveiled a raft of measures to support the economy, including tax cuts and an energy price cap. The plans drove the pound to a record low against the US dollar this week, but some in the hospitality sector are calling these plans a lifeline. Joining us now is Emma McClarkin. She's chief executive of the British Beer and Pub Association. Emma, fantastic to have you with us. We can talk about the impact of the energy price caps and the impact of the money provided and the support provided in the latest budget from from the government. But I want you to set the scene first. What is the situation for the average British pub in the United Kingdom at this moment? Well, it has been an extraordinary two and a half years throughout the pandemic, but especially for the beer in the pub sector where we were shut down and heavily restricted for a very long period of time. That has left us, unfortunately, on average, a British pub carrying around 25,000 debt. They've used all access to uh, extra finance that they possibly had and used all of their life savings. And we came out of the pandemic hoping that we would be able to go into a growth period. But with the situation in Ukraine affecting our supply chains and cost inflation and the cost of living crisis, particularly affecting the amount of time that consumers come out for and how much they spend, it is an extremely difficult environment. And then, of course, we have the energy hikes on top of that. And it could leave some of our pubs in a very, very difficult situation where they're worried about their actual survival. Can you give me a sense of what percentage actually are at that point where they're contemplating shutting down because they're not financially viable? And and what difference the, as you've said, a $500 million or pound boost to the industry will be and and the, the impact of the price, the energy price caps? How many do you believe it will save? Because you've also said it's not enough. It's, it's just a step in the right direction. Well, some of our, our pubs are already having to make very tough decisions uh, based mm-hmm. off of energy or perhaps also off of a, a labour shortage about reducing their hours, closing them on certain days of the week or even restricting the items on their menu to make them less energy intensive. So they're already taking every opportunity they possibly can to uh, find ways to survive. But we're going to need to see more from the government. They have made announcements on energy last week, uh, and that will be enormously helpful for many, but they'll still see a doubling in those energy costs. And at this moment in time, we've only got one in three pubs that are profitable. And so that's the reality of the situation. And of course, we're heading into a winter period now, which is 
already quite difficult for us uh, to navigate. And so we're deeply worried about not only how we can survive this winter, but continue to be at the hearts of the communities we serve long into the future. You know, it's fascinating, isn't it? Because there will be people listening to this that say, hang on a second, if, if one in three of these public houses are not profitable, is there natural attrition for non-viable businesses that, that is taking place here? Does the United Kingdom have too many pubs? Emma, your response to that? Oh, absolutely not. I think we're all very sad to see um, that the, the pub has been in decline um, in, in the years leading up to the pandemic. And, and we lose so much more than, than just a business and that economic boost. It is that social hub. It's where we come together as a community. It's where we meet the love of our life. It's where we go to nurse our broken heart. Um, and sometimes it's the only conversation that one person may have in a day is with the people that they go and meet at the pub. And so it is something that we do need to save. The government have given us recognition of how important we are, not only economically, because we operate in every town and village in the United Kingdom and provide jobs there, but also from that social aspect where we're part of the fabric of our society and we will be much poorer without them. So that's why that they deserve this extra recognition from the government and this extra support to see them through. I mean, some of the other statistics that leap out at me, 40% of employees in the sector are 16 to 24-year-olds. It's a source of, of employment for, for young people in particular, which is, is really worrying. Um, there's a couple of stats, actually. One that you've just given, which is the average debt level at £25,000 for these pubs. I mean, at a time when uh, the Bank of England's hiking interest rates, we've seen the turbulence that's been created this week. You're saying they need to do more. But I think what the, the message from sort of the global investor in the marketplace is saying is that the the central bank lacks credibility and the, the government lacks credibility with the sheer scale of spending. It's a, um, it's a, it's a catch-22. I also read, Emma, that the price of a pint of beer could reach £10, £9, £10. I mean, are people going to be able to afford that? That's the other problem. It's whether people can actually afford to come into the pub and, and, and drink and, and share stories and, and talk to people. And we want to keep the pub uh, an affordable luxury for all. And that is exactly what we have been with a great leveller where everybody can come in and drink together, eat together, meet together and be able to know that they can afford to do that. And it's a real test, actually, of how we can survive through this inflationary period of time. But our members are seeing throughout the in, in the pub chain, we're seeing between 15 to 20 percent. Um, inflationary increases and that will go up to as much as 25% for some of our brewers and they're having to find also a way to cover these uh, energy costs that even with the discount that the government has applied may even still see a doubling of those costs and we'll have to find again somewhere to put those costs they don't want to put their prices up but in order to survive many of them will but that's why we're asking the government to give us special injection of interim support to look at business rates and reforming those and relief and uh, giving us relief on those for at least the remainder of this uh, financial year and then looking at also at VAT that's something that will really help not only our businesses but consumers with encouraging them to continue spending and feel that they can get real value for money and that is something I hope that the government will look at on a sector specific basis in order to help hospitality because we really can fire on the economy when we are doing well the country is doing well and we need to continue to be able to offer those jobs for young people for flexible working for women up and down the country um, to come back to the industry, come and work with us because we are an industry that the government are backing and that the British people back to. 
I know. The challenge is how do they afford it and maintain confidence in the UK economy um, with all the spending that they're trying to do? It's, it's tough. Emma, great to chat to you. Thank you for your insights. Emma McClarkin there, Chief Executive of the British Beer and Pub Association there. Okay, coming up next, Earth strikes back. NASA successfully slamming a spacecraft into an asteroid. Find out why next. Welcome back to First Move into a stunning moment in history for NASA as it made humanity's first planetary defense test. Yes, the goal was to deliberately fire a spacecraft into an asteroid in an effort to change its orbit, as Kristen Fisher reports. In a galaxy where asteroids have pummeled planets for billions of years, now one planet strikes back. Liftoff. Ten months, around 6.8 million miles later, and with a speed of nearly 14,000 miles per hour, the double asteroid redirection test spacecraft, known as DART, made history on Monday night. Three, two, one. Oh, my gosh. Oh, wow. The NASA crew and scientists around the world celebrated the culmination of a grueling journey live. Fantastic. Oh, fantastic. DART's mission, the first of its kind, was to test technological capabilities to protect humanity from hazardous asteroids or other deadly objects in space. To see it so beautifully concluded today was just uh, an incredible feeling and also very tiring. (laughs) The DART spacecraft was about the size of a refrigerator. Its target asteroid, Dimorphos, is about the height of the Washington Monument. Over the last seven years, thousands of people have been working on this planetary defense test mission. So this is an important test for planetary defense mitigation strategies in case we ever have to do this for real. That meant building an unmanned spacecraft and deliberately crashing it into a moving planetary object in their very first attempt right on target. Once we got a look at Dimorphos, uh, I think that's when the team was confident uh, that we were going to hit. A remarkable achievement that could possibly prevent future threats from hitting our planet. These are baby steps right now just to see if it works, all right, to see if we have the power to do this. And then when the big one comes, you want to make sure that there's enough of these practice runs that, in fact, we would end up succeeding. In the coming weeks, NASA will analyze images and video that a briefcase-sized CubeSat captured during the impact. But NASA says it will take months before it knows if the DART mission was successful. What we're going to be seeing probably in the next couple of months, we're actually going to get a confirmation of exact uh, period change that we made. Asteroids, especially big ones, are not just a Hollywood imagination, as in the 1998 movie Armageddon. It's what we call a global killer. Nothing would survive, not even bacteria. Asteroids are very real threats, and having the means to deflect them is of vital interest to everyone on planet Earth. If we can confirm that the thing was deflected by less than one degree, we know that this would, in principle, work on a large scale. The last time a deadly asteroid hit Earth was around 65 million years ago. You can bet that if the dinosaurs had NASA, they would have deflected that asteroid. What a moment. Monday's test hopes to prevent that from ever happening again. Should all Earthlings sleep a little easier tonight? I definitely think that 
as far as we can tell, our first planetary defense test was a success, and I think we can clap to that, everyone. <laughs> so, <laughs> right? So, yeah, well, I, um, yeah, I think the Earthlings should sleep better. Definitely, I will. Yeah. How do you feel? Like, the people working here, yeah. we're definitely going to sleep better. <laughs> And Kristen joins us now. Kristen, if only the dinosaurs would have had NASA. That was a that was a great live. But I watched you report on this live and I was bouncing up and down on my chair as well. Um, a thousand people working on this for more than seven years. And now we have to wait two months to work out exactly how well it worked. Two months for the final full okay. results. Julia, I think we're going to know uh, a lot sooner if it was able to actually push it uh, off its intended or current orbit by just a little bit. Several weeks is what most of those scientists and members of the DART team are saying. Two months is kind of the worst case scenario. But yeah, Julia, I mean, it was, I've covered a lot of space missions. This one might be one of my favorite because being there at Mission Control, you really got the sense that this DART team is so proud of the fact that they are doing this not only for all of humanity in the future, but it was also kind of a tribute to all of the Earthlings of the past, and especially the dinosaurs. It really felt like this was kind of a, a tribute to the dinosaurs. And then the other thing I would say is just how incredible those images were of the actual asteroid. I mean, getting to see those rocks up close like that. Uh, nobody had ever seen the surface of this asteroid before until last night. So that was one of the other kind of uh, big moments uh, where the crowd really cheered and, and got all excited last night. I had a blast. A little tired, but I had a blast. <laughs> I saw one of the scientists refer to the uh, asteroid as, isn't it cute? <laughs> to your point, like, she's a good scientist. She's in the right job. Um, it does. It kind of looks like a dinosaur egg, right? I mean, with all the scales on it or uh, maybe, maybe a dragon egg. That's what folks there were, uh, were speculating about. So, yes, you're again, clearly in the right job, too. An ode to the dinosaurs, right? <laughs> Thank you for that. Um, good job. Thank you. Okay, Hurricane Ian has also forced NASA to start moving the Artemis 1 moon rocket back to its hangar at Kennedy Space Station just to be safe. The very slow four-and-a-half-mile trek began last night. The move will delay the third launch attempt for the unmanned rocket for at least a few weeks, possibly until November. But Kristen will be back reporting on that very soon, we promise. And that's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. You can search for at CNN. In the meantime, Connect the World with Becky Anderson is up next, and I'll see you tomorrow. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.